Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Amy, and I'm one of the pastors here. And at the risk of sort of sounding like a one-note preacher, uh, as I was reading through the texts for this week and was praying and preparing to preach, I was, again, really struck with all of these encounters with the risen Jesus, which, if you were here last week, was the title of my sermon and the theme of my sermon, just kind of a string of observations on encounters with the risen Jesus. And that's what struck me again as I read John's gospel and John's revelation. All of the details of these encounters just seemed fresh. In John's gospel, the Jesus we see is so earthy, so relatable. He's so human. And then in John's revelation, Jesus is anything but earthy. And actually, in this vision, he's not even human. He's a lamb who's been slaughtered. He's on a throne. He has a scroll. There are seals. And he's surrounded by the song of every created thing praising him. Even the angels in the heavens are praising him. And then I love this detail. Even all the creatures in the depths of the sea are praising him. It was in the psalm, too. But a lot like last week, what really moved me was the pairing of these two visions, these two encounters, that these two pictures of Christ that we see are actually the same Jesus, this weird and exalted and holy one from Revelation, and this very human, earthy, beachy one from John's Gospel. And that Jesus, who's being praised by the sea creatures forever and ever, is also just cooking fish on the beach. We see in both of those together the not yet and the now and the revealed and the hidden, but it's all the same Jesus. And we're called to live and to work and to exist between those two realities between the vision that we see in Revelation of a world that is already filled with the glory of God, as the psalm said, and then our present reality, the reality in John's gospel, where the world is not yet filled with the glory of God. And that's the same task that the disciples are facing after the resurrection, when we meet them on the beach. The world has utterly changed, but everything looks exactly the same. How are they going to live in this same but different world? How are they going to live in the light of the reality of resurrection in a world where there is still so much death and suffering and pain? Well, if you'll let me put my English literature hat on for a moment, which I am always kind of hesitant to even take off, um, but that's what my undergrad is in and that's what I love. Uh, and practically speaking, what a good storyteller would do here is put in an epilogue. Now, the real story of John's gospel ended at chapter 20, which is what we read last week where Jesus appears to Mary outside of the tomb. We read that two weeks ago. And then he appears to Thomas and to the disciples in the hidden room or the locked room. And then the last two chapters or the last two verses of that chapter say, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is an excellent conclusion to the gospel. It reminds us that the whole point of everything John has recorded 
was to give us the works of Jesus so that we could believe in him and find our life in him. And it's that challenge I named a minute ago. How do we live into this new reality in a world that looks the same? But biblical scholars agree that John 21, our text for this week, is an epilogue. It was added on later. It's the story that comes after the story, kind of a closing act, something that's meant to remind the reader that even though the action on the page has ended, this story continues to live on. Now, a bad epilogue will come in and tie up every loose end with a really neat and tidy bow. And frankly, if you want my hot take, I think one of the worst epilogues out there is the Harry Potter one. We can take this outside later. I don't want to know that everyone married their high school sweetheart and everyone got their dream job and lived happily ever after and everything's just the same forever. So I'll just set that there for you to ponder in your hearts. But a good epilogue is going to keep the story open in our imaginations. It's going to remind us that this story is a living thing, that its truth continues and is active in the present day. And this is a story about which that is truer than Harry Potter, truer than all the stories, the story of Jesus' resurrection. And so God, who is our master storyteller, who's the author and the finisher and the conclusion writer of our faith, he gives us an epilogue at the end of John. And it's a really good one. Not too neat and tidy, packed with all these meaningful sensory details that will fuel the disciples' imaginations and their memories for the work of living in light of the resurrection. So, this epilogue begins after these things. And it's talking about the things we read last week. Thomas and the disciples locked away, hiding, scared, touching Jesus aside. And then in this epilogue, we see them again. Thomas, John, Peter, a couple others. They're out fishing at night. So right away we notice Thomas is in the boat. Whatever happened in that locked room, in what we read last week, whatever touching he got to do, it seems like Thomas's doubts were satisfied and that he is still in the boat. He is one of the disciples. He's still here. And then we also notice that they are out in a boat. They're not hiding away in a locked room anymore. They are venturing back out into the world and they're starting to do the ordinary things that they did before. They're working. And if you've ever experienced grief, you know what it's like after the initial shock has sort of faded and you start to go back into the activities of your everyday life. And these things that feel so familiar feel really unfamiliar because you know, even though the world doesn't seem to know, that everything has changed. Everything has shifted. And that's what they are feeling as they get back into the familiar rhythm of going out in the boat and dropping their net and fishing at night. They know that the man that they have been following for the last three years has been crucified and resurrected and that the world looks the same, but it's really different. And so they fish all night. They don't catch anything, which must feel so incredibly futile and frustrating and 
just lonely and dark and exhausting. But then verse 4 tells us that just after daybreak, Jesus stood on the beach. Jesus comes when the light breaks. Or a better, truer way to say this is that the light breaks when Jesus comes, always. And all of the miracles and the nourishment of his presence that we get in this story, they come at dawn. They come when the light of Jesus breaks into the night, when the disciples literally and figuratively, remember, because I have my English hat on, they set their faces toward the risen sun. And when they do, Jesus tells them, cast their net on the other side. They do. The net fills with all these fish, so many they can't haul it in. And they, again, they're doing this old familiar thing, something they've done all their lives, something they've done all night. But when Jesus shows up, when the light breaks in, he gives this fresh word, and this familiar thing is transformed. All of that darkness and the futility and the scarcity of fishing all night in some grief-stricken state, it's gone. And in its place is this abundant provision, this very detailed abundant provision. 153 silvery, wriggling fish, so many that the net almost stretches to breaking, but doesn't. And when they see this miracle, John immediately recognizes Jesus, and he says, it is the Lord. And Peter puts on some clothes, because it says he's naked, I guess that's what they do, and jumps into the water. And a few years ago, I remember we were, I was in a small group where we were looking at this passage, and Emily Williams was sort of laughing and saying that it's like Peter sees Jesus and is like, oh, Jesus is here. I better dress up. I'll put on a coat and a tie and then jumps in the water. And it really is just that absurd. There's this fourth century poet named Ephraim the Syrian. He was born in modern day Eastern Turkey. And when he writes about Peter in this passage, he calls him a deep sea diver. He says he is plunging into the depths going after the pearl of great price. And the pearl of great price is this metaphor that Jesus used in the Gospels to teach people what the kingdom of God was like. But here in Ephraim's imagination, Jesus is the pearl. He is the kingdom in their midst. He is worth any price. And so Peter becomes a pearl diver and just plunges in after him. And I just love that imagery this wholehearted recognition that the thing that is most valuable and most needed and most desired and beautiful in all the world is right there on the shore, and Peter is going all in to get where he is. Imagine how that must have felt as Peter. Just every stroke dragged down with all these layers of clothes and your lungs burning and the exhaustion of swimming when you've just been up all night fishing, Peter just puts his whole self into being where Jesus is, into getting that pearl of great price. But we have to keep in mind that for Peter, Jesus is also something else. Jesus is also the person that he betrayed. Back when Jesus was on trial, Peter had denied him three times. 
And so Jesus is also this living, breathing reminder of the worst thing that Peter had ever done, of all of the shame that that stirs up in Peter. And when Peter shows up on the shore while the others are bringing in the boat, dragging the net, we hear starting in verse 9, when they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore. And again, we see Peter throwing his whole body into what Jesus has said. You can imagine him dripping wet with these drenched clothes, dragging in 153 fish all by himself. Now, a little bit later in this service, we're going to accept new members. And one of the questions that we ask them as part of the membership promises is this. Do you affirm your desire, not perfect execution, but desire to worship and follow Christ with your whole self? And this soggy Peter is a picture of that desire, of that whole selfness that we promise. And now finally we come to that charcoal fire, which is really kind of the burning heart of this story. You might have noticed that it said that Jesus actually already had fish and bread on the fire. But then he invites them to bring in some of what they caught. He doesn't need their fish, but he invites them to bring it. And if we think back to a moment for those words from Revelation that Chrissy read, that every creature in the sea is singing blessing and honor and glory and might forever to Jesus, And we remember that Jesus spoke this sea and every fish in it into being. He sort of stocked the tank for them. He spoke just a moment ago from the shore this miraculous catch into being. Jesus has already been at work in the world from before the dawn of time, creating and sustaining and renewing all things. And yet, he invites the disciples' participation. They get to do meaningful work. They get the deep satisfaction of hauling in a net full of fish in the sunshine after a night of frustration. Their work here matters, but it doesn't depend on them. Instead, their work is just participating in the bigger work that Jesus has already done And Jesus will continue doing since the creation of the world. And then we see Jesus is already preparing this meal to share with his friends. And that they just get to participate. He scoots his things over, makes room on the fire for whatever they bring. And I might cry, but it reminds me a little bit of this church and the broader church, and the way we all bring our gifts and our little offerings to this table that Jesus has already prepared for us, that he is always making room for more, for more of ourselves, for more people, for more of what we bring. And that's another reason that I'm really delighted that we get to receive new members today, because I get to imagine the kinds of work and gifts and selves that they will bring to this table, to this feast that we all continually share.
How are we all going to be participating in what Jesus is doing here? And then just one final thing about that fire. John made a point of using that phrase charcoal fire because he used it a few chapters earlier. Back in chapter 18, John told us that all three of Peter's denials also happened over a charcoal fire. All of those happened when Peter was cold and warming himself over a charcoal fire. And so again, we see Peter who is wet and probably chilly, and the smell of burning charcoal is in the air. And Jesus has invited him into this sensory reminder of his shame. And he's given him this gracious invitation for a do-over. And we don't read the verses that follow this morning, but Jesus asks Peter three times if he loves him, three times to profess his love for Jesus, three times to redo those three denials of Jesus, to heal Peter's memory, to heal Peter's shame, to restore what is broken in him and fill him up for the work that's ahead. So how do we live as resurrection people in a world that looks the same? A world where it looks like death and scarcity and shame and pain are the end of the story. Well, like any good epilogue, John 21 doesn't tie up everything with a tidy bow, but it helps us imagine how this story might keep living through us, how we might put our own details into this story, how we might set our own faces toward the risen sun that is one day going to break up the night forever, how we might work with joy and freedom knowing and trusting that the work we do is just participating in this bigger work that Jesus has already done so we can rest. How we might trust that the abundance of the kingdom of God is actually truer and is going to outlast the scarcity that we see. How we might come into the burning presence of Jesus where our shame is healed, where we're restored and forgiven. And how all of us, as a church and in the world, how we might all bring our gifts to this generous table that Jesus is setting, where he is always willing to scoot his stuff over and make room for us to bring our gifts, where he will feed us and equip us and make us his people. We'll now just take a moment of silence. <laughs>